Hello, welcome to the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 14, and today I'm going to be chatting with John Etheridge. It's a bit of a change. He is a guitarist who played with Stefan Grappelli. Um, first of all, I'm going to chat about our sponsor. I am sponsored, or this podcast is sponsored by Ithaca Strings, which is basically Eric Aceto. Eric Aceto is a New York-based luthier and engineer. He has created an amazing dual mic pickup system. So it's basically a microphone and a pickup that are both attached to your violin uh, in the most discreet way possible. So it doesn't feel like you've got too much stuff hanging on your hanging on your instrument. Um, but it picks up an amazing sound. So I've been using it for the past couple of months now and I can talk about it with real authority. So in my opinion, um, the main thing that I've, I really like about it is that it's supremely versatile. So you know that going to a, a gig with this system, like nine times out of 10, you've got what you need to, to give yourself a great sound. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're playing like a pub gig or if you're playing a concert hall, you're, you can use this pickup for both of those applications. And the great thing is, if you've got a good blending preamp, you can decide yourself how much mic you're gonna use or how much pickup you're gonna use. And that's really what I'm talking about, is that this versatility, it, it's like you have the power to decide, even just in the moment, you know, how much mic or how much pickup is gonna be going through your system there. It gives you a really full tone. Uh, you get a lots of nice low, low end from the bridge pickup and you then can add a nice bit of high end from the Electra microphone. I'm really happy with it. Uh, I'm using it on most of my, well, I'm using it on all of the gigs that I need to be amplified on, which is quite a lot of them. You know, if it's an acoustic gig, obviously I'm not using it, but uh, yeah, I'm using it for all amplified gigs at the moment. Really enjoying it. Thanks to Eric. Okay, so uh, this is the first time uh, on this podcast I've had anybody who isn't a violinist or a, a jazz violinist. John was in the band Soft Machine in the 70s in London and was picked up by Diz Disley to join Stefan Grappelli as his uh, road guitarist. John was really enjoyable to chat with and... Um, has lots of great stories about playing with Stefan Grappelli. So I just thought it'd be nice today to do a little episode on here um, about Grappelli. And uh, yeah, I thought John was the, the best guy to chat to about that. All right, thank you very much. Uh, hope you enjoy. Well, basically, it'd be cool to start with how you started playing. And yeah, just that. Well, me myself. Yeah, yeah, you yourself. Yeah. Yeah, me myself and I started playing. It's uh, a long time ago. Yeah. It'd be about 1960. And uh, the reason I did it, I was um, I was a um, Cliff Richard film. Yeah. Called the Young Ones. Right. Which was really stupid. I knew. I mean, I knew even at the age of 12, this was a stupid film. Yeah. Cliff Richard and Eunice Dubs. And then suddenly, there were the shadows. Hank Marvin. Bruce Welch, uh, Jet Harris, and the drummer, who's Tony Meehan, I think. And, and they had this red, two red Stratocasters and a red Precision bass. Yeah. 
doing their steps and playing this tune called The Savage. Uh-huh. And uh, I just heard that, saw that and heard it, and I thought, bloody hell. Yeah. Right, I need a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I'd never gotten anywhere near... I didn't get anywhere near... There was a bloke at school who had a red guitar. My guitar was brown. Yeah. I did, after a couple of years, get an electric guitar, but <coughs> it was a Hofner. Yeah. And it was brown. So it wasn't red, but that was okay. So that got me going, and, of course, so I did, like every other guitarist in that time, was playing sort of Hank Marvin stuff and trying yeah. to... Without the echo and without the sound, and yeah. you know, and then uh, I suppose guitar-wise, and it was Django Reinhardt who I heard at a very early age, okay. and that completely, um, you know, that was just uh, astounding. You know, I remember, I remember hearing, you know, a friend of mine at school, Mark, the guy who was a rhythm guitarist in my band. I was Hank, you know, and he was Bruce Wells. Yeah, and he um, he said, "Oh, there's this bloke Django Reinhardt," and I thought, "Well, that doesn't sound very likely." Yeah. Like some German. I mean, <laughs> how can he be any good? Schenker Reinhardt. He said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should hear this. You know, my dad's got the records, and his dad was a guitar player, and right. he had the records. So we, he played me this record, and he played me. I think the first thing he played um, was their version of Swanee River. Okay, yeah, which is ridiculous. Yeah, you know, even now it's ridiculous. And I just went, my God, you know. So then we became Django fanatics. Yeah. So at school we were playing all the hot club stuff, trying to, yeah. um, not on, on our acoustic guitars, you know. So we were doing a bit of electric and a bit of acoustic. Yeah. And on the acoustic we did, <coughs> we did, um, you know, a sort of imitation of the hot club stuff. Yeah. Pretty, pretty poor, I must say. But, <laughs> but it was great, you know, it was great. And we were, so we were sort of fanatics. And uh, occasionally you'd meet people. There's a great thing about that period uh, I know everybody says this you know but but it's you know it's, it's interesting is that of course nothing was available yeah so if you got something there was one Reinhardt Grappelli record you could get there were two actually on Decca and um, so you could get that and play that to death and occasionally I'd go into the record shop uh, somewhere and there'd be a guy listening to it, because you could always listen to the records in the booth. You yeah. could play them. And you go, wow. It's a bit like, you know, Jagger and Richards meeting on the bus with the Muddy Waters record. Yeah. You meet somebody who was into Django Reinhardt, you go, wow, yeah. amazing, wow. And of course, you know, it's, it's kind of important, and it's, it's a kind of reason why people of my age, and of course before, and a little bit afterwards, but particularly, say, my period, have all got their own way of playing, because... We had very little to listen to. Yeah. Very little from the past. Yeah. There were one or two albums. I remember being terribly impressed that Louis Armstrong's West End Blues had never been out of print. Yeah. But everything else was out of print. Right. Couldn't okay. get it. Maybe you'd find it with your dad. The only reason I heard Django Reinhardt was because the guy's father mm. had, the ja- <coughs> had the Django Reinhardt <coughs> album. Mm-hmm. So, so we heard it. Yeah. And um, that was... Just luck. I would never have heard that stuff if yeah. it hadn't been for him. Yeah. So that was Django. And then then, um, then in 1965, I went to do my A-levels. And uh, I'd, fa- I'd uh, been kicked out of my school. Mm-hmm. I, I have to own up. I was at a boarding school, you know. Uh-huh. So I have no <laughs> right to play the blues. <laughs> Except I do, of course. Emotional deprivation. Yeah. But I was at boarding school and I got sort of semi-expelled, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, uh, trying to get some A-levels in London and uh, 
almost the second day I arrived, uh, a guy came up to me and went, oh, you play, the, play a bit. I said, yeah, yeah, he said, I'm a drummer. He said, have you heard Eric Clapton? And I went, oh, yeah, I know Eric Clapton. Yeah, Telecaster, five live Yardbirds. Yeah, 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 quite good, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm quite... He said, you should go and hear him now. And I went, oh, yeah, really? OK, all right. Okay. So I wasn't that. You know, I was quite a blues man. Yeah. And I'd heard the early Yardbirds stuff, and mm -hmm. Clapton sounded quite good, you know. And I went to... Um, Manor House, just up here. Yeah. And when I walked in, there was this guitar going, <laughs> and I just went, what the, what? I remember looking at the guitar and going, what's that sound? How, what is that sound he's getting? How can he get that sound? Yeah. What is it? You know, we were absolutely flawed, you know, totally flawed. And, um, you know, and I'd been listening to uh, Buddy Guy and people, you know, great blues players. But this was something else. This was, it wasn't even to do with the blues. It was this singing sound. Mm. You know, and of course, it, yeah, everybody knows, you know, the Les Paul and the Marshall and uh, turned mm. up and, and I presume it just sort of happened and he kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, got onto it. Anyway, we don't want to too much, spend too much time on that. But there it was. So that blew me mm. away. So really, after that, it was like putting together... Django and Eric Clapton, yeah. and to a certain extent Hendrix, and you know, because later obviously I was into Jimmy, and and we used to see all these guys in small rooms, you know. Mm. So, so and I knew them a bit, you know. I knew Clapton, I knew Hendrix a bit, and, and they were, you know, they they were sort of, you know, they were up there, but they weren't up in the stratosphere then. Sure. And so we could talk to them, see them. Yeah. You know, I played with Eric a bit and all that, and mm -hmm. so anyway, the point is, as far as for the point of this is. I really wanted to put together these things. And I think a lot of people were working on the same lines, you know. Yeah. Because I like jazz, mm -hmm. but straight jazz guitar, I mean, I got interested in it from a research point of view. Sure. But it never turned me on. Yeah. In fact, I, I completely lost interest in jazz guitar till I heard John McLaughlin. So... Because then I thought, oh, this is jazz with balls, you know. Yeah. What what what, what is it about the, the oh, jazz guitar you don't like? Well, I I like it now, but at the time when I was seventeen, eighteen, having heard Clapton and and Reinhardt, of course, who was, you know, had a great sound, was aggressive, yeah. fantastic technique, amazing tone, yeah, incredible ideas. You know, there's people like you know even Wes Montgomery, who I yeah. you know I really like, but. It was the it was the dull sound. I yeah. think I think it's the tone, the dull yeah. tone. Yeah. And I think people, even lay people, I don't know about you, but you know, lay people, even you know, musicians who don't play the guitar, are really good musicians, they find that sound of the jazz guitar yeah. really dull. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. And I found it dull at that time. I had Charlie Christian. My father was a big Charlie Christian fan. Right. And he used to he used to say, "You don't want to listen to Django Reinhardt. No, don't, no, it doesn't swing. It's." Yeah. <laughs> Listen to Benny Goodman and Charlie Christian. So yeah. uh, I really appreciated Charlie Christian. And uh, the, the time, the first time I really got turned on to Charlie Christian was when I heard the Live at Minton's recordings, uh -huh. which is some of the earliest live yeah. recordings. And uh, I mean, it's, it's like one of those things, it's like Eric 1965, yeah. Jimi Hendrix 1966 or something. That Charlie Christian recordings in 1940 and 41. Electric jazz guitar has never been better. Yeah. I mean, it's changed. It's got more sophisticated, more technique, yeah. more skill. Yeah. But the, if you listen to those live 
Charlie Christian albums from Minton's. It's, they're just colossal. And, and my dad, and me and my dad, was a lovely bonding moment. I brought it back and played it to my dad. Yeah. And he was absolutely blown away. He'd never oh, wow. heard these live recordings. Right. He was totally blown away. And so we had this lovely thing where I said, yeah, Dad, I get Charlie Christian now. I can, yeah. get, really get it. You know? Yeah. So amazing. It's just they, those recordings. It's so swinging. Yeah. So driving. It's just fabulous. Anyway, so... So then I started in professional music, and um, I was in the soft machine. Yeah. Uh, and prog- before that, I was in progressive rock bands, doing my, trying to do my thing, which yeah. was, as I say, this sort of... At the time, it was more jazz than rock, actually. I was a rather a purist, and I, I wouldn't kind of... Having criticised the dull sound, I tried to get a decent sound. Yeah. But I didn't do much in the way of... Because when I heard this Clapton thing... I thought, well, I've got to do my own thing. That's amazing. I'm not going to copy that. And I got everybody... I, I, my mouth was open mm. at how everybody copied it and didn't own up. Yeah. And so anybody your age, you think of Eric Clapton as a sort of bit of a joke, but he actually started he the whole did thing. It, yeah. yeah, and then everybody copied yeah. it. And then within four years, he just sounded like everybody else. Three yeah. years, he just sounded... You go, yeah. well, what's so good about him? And you go, well... He started it. It's a bit like my dad used to say about Louis Armstrong. He said, Louis Armstrong, he just sounds like an ordinary trumpet. I said, yeah, but he did it. Yeah, yeah. He started it. You've got to have points for that, surely. Yeah. yeah or Charlie Parker. Yeah. Or Coltrane. Michael Brecker. You've yeah. got to have points, you know, even though, okay, everybody can listen to Dave Gilmore and go, that's great, that's marvellous. There's got to be some sort of point where you know it doesn't matter if you're an ordinary listener but yeah if people are talking in a critical sense yeah yeah they should say okay this is great but it comes from Clapton I mean yeah. I arrived at university in 1967 first bloke I met was a guy from Cambridge who knew the Floyd who at that time was Sid Barrett he said oh yeah yeah, yeah. there's a good Clapton type guitarist in Cambridge Dave Gilmore he's you know he he's good at all that stuff yeah you know, next thing, we're in a pub and Dave Gilmore's there going, oh, you know what, I've joined Pink Floyd. <laughs> and I'm going, thinking to myself, well, that's not going to be any good because without Sid Barrett, they can't go anywhere, yeah. can they? And, of course, I was a bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, boy, was there I was in prog rock, playing prog rock, playing trance, and I was in the soft machine, and um, it's a very lucky thing. We were on telly, and uh, a guy called Pete Shade, who I didn't know at the time, vibraphone player, Bumped into Diz Disley, yeah, and Diz Disley was running Grappelli's backing band, yeah, and he wanted to to get rid of Ike Isaacs, poor right. old Ike. Yeah. They'd had a falling out, uh-huh. they'd some sort of falling out, and he said, "I'm looking for some young player, you know, somebody. <laughs> hope you don't mind my northern <laughs> imitation because he was from Yorkshire. That's actually quite good. I think it's yeah. decent. Yes, it's decent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm looking. I'm for not a young... offended. Yeah, so, not offended. No. Right. <laughs> I'm looking for a young player, and um, you know, and um, and this Pete Shade said, "Well, I just saw this." bloke with the soft machine last night on yeah. the television which of course was completely inappropriate a stylistic yeah thing. but luckily he didn't say that to, to Disney. he just said oh this guy was good you know he should so i get a call from Diz disley hello it's Diz disley yeah Diz disley he said yes i said bloody blimey what are you you know and anyway he came round said we're looking for somebody you know and i said well i'm actually with the soft machine but um they said, well, you know, come to Hamburg. And we had a... Grappelli had one show in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. You know, they were... They had... 
<coughs> there was a gig, I think it was December 76, yeah. in Hamburg for Hamburg Hotel, and then there was nothing until a world tour starting at the end of February. Right. So he bundled me into a car, and we went over to Hamburg, and I borrowed an acoustic guitar. I didn't have an acoustic guitar or anything. Yeah. I borrowed an acoustic guitar, and um, and he sort of... Uh, he said, right, now, now, stay in your room and I'll tell you when you're to come and rehearse. So, so I went, OK, fine. So I sat in my room with my borrowed acoustic guitar trying to remember my Django licks or yeah. whatever it was or remember some of the tunes. Yeah. You know, I, I felt fairly unqualified in a way. Yeah. Um, and then he comes, bangs on the room. Right, we've got to get you some claws, you know. You can't look like some damn hippie. <laughs> can't have you looking like some damn hippie. So we went down and we bought a bright red shirt. <coughs> he bought it, actually. Bright red shirt. And he got me a... He said, you've got to have a dangler. So he got me some awful, <laughs> ludicrous pendant. <laughs> you've got to have a dangler. A dangler. That's you've amazing. got to have a dangler. Isn't that amazing? So down. And then he went, I went and sat back in my room with my red shirt and my dangler on. <laughs> and then knock on the door, come next door, and next door... We sat there, Diz and me, and the bass player, Phil Bates, and then he said, I'll go and get Grappelli, and Grappelli came in, and <coughs> I don't know what was going on. I think, well, actually, I got used to him very yeah. quickly, but he he always used to come in moaning. That was his uh, thing, you know. Very Gallic, apparently. Mm. You know, oh, it's so cold, I'm fed up to be here. <laughs> and he wasn't very keen on my being there. Who knows what happened? He was very fond of Ike Isaacs. He liked him. Yeah. So there'd been some falling out with Diz, and Diz had got rid of Ike Isaacs and presented. He might not even have told Stefan, actually. Right. Might have told him just before that we <gasps> he got to the door. Oh, by yeah. the way, there's a new guitar player. Right. What? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so he was not keen on it. So he wouldn't talk to me or anything. He wouldn't even look at me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so the first tune, he goes, Hello, Diz, ask him. <laughs> Does he know them their eyes? <laughs> so Diz, so Diz, the intermediary, says to me, do you know them their eyes, John? And I think I think I do, yeah, OK, I do, yeah. So we start off really fast. Yeah. Then I played A minus D seventh there. And he stopped, he goes, in G, you see? Oh, and he yeah. goes, what is that horrible chord? Without looking at me, <laughs> I went, oh, oh, I think that was the chord that did you do Django, Django played. You did I the thought, Django changes. Well, I thought that was the Django, you know, didn't didn't Django play that chord on the on the recording? And, uh, oh, he would never play that horrible chord. Oh. <laughs> so, alors, G, A7. Yeah. A7. Okay, so all right, okay, A7, right, right, right. So we've roared through that, no sign of a solo or anything, just roared through it. Then we did, oh, that's right, then he said, it's amazing how I can remember all this. I mean, yeah. I can't remember, you know, you coming round or something, I like you to forget, but this I can remember <laughs> totally. Then he said, alors, we'll do Manoir de mes rêves. Des, tell him to accompany me. John, will you accompany <laughs> Stefan on this? Yeah, okay. Because he goes, I'm going, plink, 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 I mean, I'd never accompanied anybody yeah. in, a, in a jazz tune before in my whole life. Right. Never. never. Absolutely not. Amazing. Out of the question, Colavoci said, oh, no, no, Des, you do it. So I thought, I was thinking, well, this is, 
this is going to be, you know. I, I was thinking, you know, I wasn't that freaked out. I was. Just, it wasn't that I was over nervous or something. I was just thinking, well, you know, there's be something to talk about. Go back to the machine yeah. and say, I had this little thing with uh, Grappelli and it was hilarious and, yeah. uh, and that was it. And Anyway, so then, <laughs> then he says, ah, oh, he says, hello. Ah. Because working, he's working a repertoire for the television, you see. Yeah. Five tunes or something yeah. on, on telly. Oh, I'll tell you what, we play Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> you are the sunshine of my life, you see. Yeah. Which he'd sort of half learnt and Diz didn't really know. But I had I had two guitars, I had a steel string guitar and I had a nylon guitar I'd bought, uh-huh. which I was much more comfortable with because it's the guitar I'd actually been playing, whereas the acoustic guitar I'd borrowed off somebody. Right. Some horrible steel string acoustic guitar. That sounded horrible, felt horrible, yeah. And I, I couldn't really anyway. So, so I picked up the nylon guitar, and and I knew the chords properly, and we played. And then he sort of waved to me to do a solo. So I did. I sort of threw in as much as I could yeah. in the eight bars, and we finished. And he finally looked at me, and he went, "Hello, baby. Oh, <laughs> I like what you do there. Yeah, it's good." He said, "That fast business." It's good. It amused the tourists. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 and then, then, then that was the rehearsal over. Then, and then I, I was walking into the. He was having dinner, sitting, having dinner with um, Phil Bates, the bass player. And as I walked in, I heard him say, "He's a nice boy. I like him. That's good. <laughs> in some ways, he's better than I." Which is, just goes to show how incredibly adaptable you're talking about. Right, being chameleon like that. Stefan got over the loss of Ike Isaacs mm. very quickly and adapted to me. And then, then he, he loved me and we, we had a great time. Yeah. You know, and he was, was very um, great to be with. The thing about if we get slightly serious, I mean, on a musical level, people say, oh, you must have learnt so much from Stefan Grappelli. Well, in terms of notes, not really, but what a lot of things I learnt from him uh, about... Uh, you know, music making were, uh, first of all, you know, having come from the soft machine, which was all nail, navel gazing and yeah. conflict and competition and kind of, you know, it was all young people, you know. Um, he had a amazingly sort of, uh, when he played the violin, he was really free. Mm-hmm. Rest of the time, he was an anxious person because right. of his background, you know, he was very watchful, careful. Mm. He wasn't paranoid about people, but he was so paranoid about money, ah. possessions, you know, because he'd, he'd, he'd never had any kind of upbringing at all. I mean, God knows what went on on the streets of bloody mm. Paris in, 19, yeah. in the 1920s when he was, or, or the 1910s when he was out on his ear, yeah, just making do. So we don't know. He never talked about it, and we have no idea. But, I mean, the kind of abuse he must have suffered. Mm. So, on that level, he was mistrustful, um, paranoid about money, paranoid, and quite understandable. Mm. Yeah. He wasn't bothered about... Um, he didn't have sort of... Uh, uh, on social level, he was great, you yeah. know, but underneath it. Mm. But when he got... You know, he it was good fun. Yeah. You know, it was good fun to hang out with, etc. But when he got with the violin... He was extremely relaxed. Yeah. And so it was really the opposite of so many people I'd played with before mm. who were kind of fun socially. And when it got into the instruments, it gets all yeah. sort of like, 
heavy. That's true, yeah. Yeah, he was just, he, he just played and it was all very natural and we hardly did any rehearsals. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we, 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 we did those for the Hamburg television. <coughs> um, I think the, fir the world, first world tour started in Hong Kong. I think when we got to Hong Kong, we slightly rehearsed on the first mm. day, very slightly. And then occasionally we'd have a rehearsal. But, the <laughs> you know, the <laughs> sorry to start laughing. It's just, you know, and so levels, he was just so, so funny. And the thing was, he was a very, very keen pianist. He's an amazing pianist. Amazing player. pianist. And this is what he was really interested in. Yeah. He used to say, I know, piano is my instrument, yeah. violin is my gimmick. Yeah. And he loved the piano, and he took the piano very seriously, and he was very serious about piano players, and very critical. Right. I mean, we were playing with John Lewis once from the MJQ, yeah. and he leant over and he said, oh, that is not a piano. Oh. You know, so he didn't appreciate it. And then poor Jimmy Rolls, who was a wonderful composer, pianist, very introverted, though, very... Delicate player. I mean, Stefan wouldn't play with him. He was really rude about it. And and uh, Art Tatum was his god. Yeah, absolutely. You can god. tell that from listening to him. I know. I know. He plays like a sort of Parisian Art Tatum, yeah. doesn't he? And uh, I remember when he first got a Walkman. When Walkman came out in '78, something. So you could get a cassette recorder with earphones, right? So he got cassette recorder with earphones, and he got this. Art Tatum cassette and he played and he found he found a place with this I can remember exactly where it was a paper moon and he does a sort of it's in F and, and he does a kind of B I think it's a kind of some sort of B altered chord Stephanie loved that chord yeah. and he found a way to play and replay and replay he just went back and forth playing that chord oh it killed me when he played that chord oh <laughs> so he was he had his ear for pianos yeah. and pianists was extreme very critical very strong very demanding yeah violin guitar he didn't really he not wasn't really very interested in the guitar actually right Provided you play the right chords, mm -hmm. and and uh, he liked listening to you, you know, and he sure. encouraged you and everything. But he, he wasn't, he wasn't, his ears weren't on it. Yeah. But as soon as a pianist rocked up, Stefan, <laughs> right. Oscar Peterson, of course, he recorded with us. He said, "Well, he's a bulldozer. <laughs> he's a great, he's a great bulldozer, but he's a bulldozer." Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, they. Didn't have much time for each other either. George Shearing, of course, he loved George Shearing's mm -hmm. playing, um, but we only got to make our first record with him because they had a bit of a falling out. Ah, uh, and because um, Stefan discovered George Shearing. Okay. So I think I didn't know that. Yeah, he discovered George Shearing in uh, London. Right. Uh, Stefan was ten years older, so at that time, Grappelli, he would have been. 30, 28, 29, yeah. and, and George Shearing was 19, 20. Right. And they played, Shearing was his pianist in one of those cafes that he played in in the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stefan used to have to take him back to, uh, on the underground, you know, in his, in his, because <laughs> he's blind, you know. Yeah. So one day, apparently, Steph said, he said, I found this scrubber, she's scrubbing the floor. Right. So I thought, aha, 
So I said to George, oh, this beautiful girl, George. <laughs> and I introduced them. So she take him back on the underground. <laughs> that's funny. And that's, he said, next thing, George comes out. He says, guess what, Steph? I'm marrying her. <laughs> and that was his first wife. They were wow. married for ages. Anyway, he complained that George was becoming a bit snobby, you see. So, right. So, because after all, Shearing became an enormous star. Sure, much bigger yeah. star than Stefan. Yeah. You know, hugely bigger in the 50s, 60s. Probably around that time. Oh, enormous. And Stefan was on his uppers then. Yeah. So there was a little bit of, you know. Mm. So there was meant to be an album made and, and there, there was a, some sort of little tiff. And so... Uh, so being Stefan, you're so blunt. Well, he never meant to be blunt, but he would come out with his hello, he said, I cannot play with Shearing, so I have to play with you. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to make our first album, which which um uh with him, which was live at the winery mm. Concord. And um interesting that um you know that was very common in those days that an artist didn't record with his touring band. Oh, okay. You know, the touring band was for the road, cheap, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> did it, we used to tour around with Dizzy Gillespie and it was the same with him. Yeah. Uh, he had Rodney Jones, Mickey Roker, can't remember who else. We used to do, Stephen Brilli Quartet, Dizzy Gillespie Quartet, <laughs> you know, and me and Rodney were very pally. And it was the same thing with them. They hardly got to make records. Right. You know, they were the road band. Yeah. So it was, you know, well, I'm not going to say an honour because I think it's a bit of a disgrace, but so we got to make the record, you know, which was great. <laughs> uh, and uh, and there was one other record came out, which was live at Carnegie Hall, and that we didn't even know was being recorded. All right. And Bob Thiel's wife, Teresa Brewer, was trying to make a comeback. So he booked her with Grappelli mm -hmm. as the one who'd bring in, because by then Stefan was almost capable of selling out the festival, uh, the Carnegie Hall, actually. Mm. You know, I mean, he, he really came up in yeah. that period, really. It's quite exciting to be around, Yeah, to be with something that's actually coming up. Yeah. You know, and uh, <coughs> so by then he was bigger than Shearing and all yeah. that. Um, but so so we did Carnegie Hall with Teresa Brewer, didn't play with us, but she had her own set. Yeah. And Bob Thiel, who's the big uh, record mogul, he secretly recorded it and put it out as a record. So I'm glad he did, because there I've got a record of me with Grappelli live at Carnegie Hall, which wouldn't certainly wouldn't have been recorded or if, yeah. you know. So I don't know what went on. It was all rather... I never got paid. and my composition, You never got paid? And my composition ended up as written by Stefan Grappelli and all that. Oh, wow. Apparently Stefan got paid. But he was very good at making sure he got paid. You know? Uh-huh. And I don't blame him because, you know, the thing is, you know, if somebody has a background like that, it that's, it's, shows up all the time. Mm -hmm. And he was great to be with most of the time. Mm -hmm. And his playing was obviously wonderful. And, yeah. and also, no pressure on you. I mean, when I first joined, and as soon as he went, boom, jump, boom, jump, he got, oh, don't play like that. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Please, you know. Yeah. So he didn't want you to play. And I was... I didn't play in the slightest bit like Django and I was playing all these kind of the time fourths, you know, the seventies. Yeah. yeah. I was playing all these fourths things. He go, What are those chords? Oh, I like them. Yeah. I don't understand it, but I like the sound of yeah. it. See, you do that, I like it. Yeah. You know? So he encouraged you to play in your own way. Mm -hmm. And you know, he was sort of you know, and he just was sort of hands off really. 
Yeah. Provided you had to play the right chords behind him. If you played a wrong chord behind him, you get his his astonished look. Yeah. He just wheel around and stare at you. So when you, you know, not not because he was just he couldn't believe it. You know what? What's that chord? So you had to make sure your you know so you know your chords had to be right. Yeah. But when it came to your soloing or whatever you were doing, no pressure to say, oh, Django didn't do that or Django did this. Or... That's good. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. So I, I was nowhere near that sound when I was with him. <laughs> I was more like a kind of fusion guy on acoustic. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I played yeah. with him. And at that time, that's the 70s, you know, before the nostalgia industry got underway and nobody gave me grief for it. People encouraged me. Yeah. It went really well. And then by the beginning of the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, the kind of retro thing was getting very strong ah. with Winter Marsalis yeah. syndrome. So you, know. you, you noticed a change there? <coughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People started playing self-consciously. Mm -hmm. The first bloke we heard about was Scott Hamilton. Uh-huh. 1977-78, I was on tour and Brian Torf said, do you know there's this guy called Scott Hamilton in New York and he plays like Ben Webster. And we'd all go, why would he do that when he's 24? <laughs> eh? We couldn't, you know, I couldn't get my head around it at the time. And of course, that was the, he was the, in the vanguard. Mm -hmm. And everybody, and then with Winter Marsalis syndrome, everybody in the 80s yeah. was either recreating miles from the 50s or... Yeah. And then, you know, and now nobody thinks anything of it. Yeah, know? it's just it's just normal. It's just it? normal. It's normal. You normal. And you can be, you can be uh, uh, contemporary if you want, but nobody gives you grief for being, you know... Yeah. I mean, all the jazz guitarists who came up in that era in the early 80s, all playing with big guitars and playing like sort of Barney Kessel or yeah. something. And you go, the time, it was like, really? Mm. Oh, okay. And, um, but then you accept it. You go, well, that's it. And of course, when I came back to this music, when Stefan died and I thought I wanted to do a tribute to him, yeah. by then it had become a huge industry. Yeah. With these guys all playing exactly the right way with the kind of ac the academy of picking and yeah. how you do it and what fingers you use. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was a real change because I really hadn't had anything to do with that, yeah. that area of music between 1981 and mm -hmm. 1998. Yeah. And when I came back, it was thriving yeah. revival, you know, wow. very much. And, of course, Stefan was... I mean, people are quite upset. I've upset people. I didn't mean to. I remember one guy was playing in Sweden with Sweet Chorus, and we were going back to the hotel. The guy was, a, you know, obviously a Grappelli Reinhardt fan. Being yeah. I said, you know, Grappelli hated that rhythm. He went, hey. You know, he was absolutely devastated. Yeah. I thought, well, I'm not going to do that to any people anymore. Well, I'm doing it now, aren't I? No, no, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good. Right, yeah, I, I mean, he he really, particularly that, that rhythm, he said, we did not want it. We had nobody else to play with. Those bloody brothers, those cousins, he said. You know? <laughs> he said, because he I think they wanted to be like Lang and Venuti. Yeah. If you hear those records, I mean, obviously, I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, not necessarily on the violin level at that time, although, yeah. of course, when Stefan developed his violin playing, because... He hadn't been playing very long. Yeah. So the Hot Club records don't show him off so well. If you listen in 1949, when they yeah. regrouped to play in Rome, Stefan's playing has gone on to another level. Yeah. But at the time, in the 30s, I mean, Joe Venuti was obviously a, a fantastic player. 
uh, Eddie Lang, although he wasn't like Django, he was a very solid. And of course they had those guys like Adrian Rolini and they had, they had a, it was swinging. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, see, this is what my dad said about the hot club. Why he, he, I said, well, I like Django. And he said, oh, he said, we didn't think anything of that in the yeah. 1930s. We thought it was novelty music. Yeah. He said, you should listen to Benny Goodman and Charlie Christian. That's the real thing. Wow, so cool. it was not, it was, it was not particularly well thought of by the mainstream. Yeah, sure, club. by mainstream jazz. No, no. But then, I mean, even the, the new style now of that or... It's not really thought of. No, no. No, that's true. <laughs> the jazz, jazz heads still <laughs> no, think it's that... like stupid. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I think it's stupid. Changed. No, that's right. That's right. That's true. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always quite shocked. Well, not shocked. I always find it weird when people who play like gypsy jazz, open quote, close quote, gypsy jazz, mm-hmm. would describe themselves as being traditionalists. So they like the traditional stuff. But what they mean is they like the stuff that was sort of created in the 80s, you know. Exactly. It's not... It's, well, it's nothing to do with Django. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I did a programme with Alan Shipton on the gypsy players who weren't Django. In other words... Yeah. Yeah. And I reckon much more influential is the... Um, Oh God! I've lost the, lost the, the name. The, the the you know the famous family, the Ferres. Yeah, the Ferres. Yeah, yeah, the Ferres. The Ferres. How they played is right. much more influential because Django became very jazz. Yeah, sure. He went off. Yes, he really. It's not quite gypsy. Quickly. It's Django. It's yeah. jazz. Quite well. It started off quite you know pyrotechnical, flashy, sure. bravura, yeah. and then he 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 started playing that part of it down. Yeah, and it was much more jazz than. And 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 when I hear a lot of those guys, I think their jazz element is quite minimal. Sure. Do you mean like the, like gypsy jazz? Yes. Now it's the, yeah. the, the, the jazz part of it's quite. If you can say people like Borelli, who's got an incredible mind, sure, and is really thinking on his feet. Yeah. Like he's like a. I mean, when that when that guy's going and he's he's really playing well, he's. It's so nimble the way he can move ideas around so quickly. Yeah, he's an absolute genius. Yeah, but uh, so many, I, I think, are kind of wonderful technicians. You've got yeah. your mouth open for ten minutes. Yeah, but you don't hear much actual in the moment thought. When sure. you see even that clip of Django playing, you can see he's thinking. Yeah, what the next phrase yeah, is going to yeah. be. And funnily enough, Char, when Char plays the guitar, he's thinking. Oh, he totally is. Yeah. I love his guitar playing. Yeah, but. Quite a lot of the the big names I find a bit bit automatic pilot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're I, amazing. You yeah. know, they, I can't get anywhere near what they're doing. Yeah, but it's kind of it's, it's that automatic thing. pilot thing, you know. Whereas Borelli can do automatic pilot, but yeah. he can also do sort of. Yeah, it's of not course. that he's versatile. I mean, that that doesn't matter. But he's he's improvising more like yes. a jazz musician. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I I think it is a little bit like. Somewhere in between jazz and, and a form of folk music. It is. You know? Exactly right. So it's got this, like, you got to play this. You have to play these exactly. things. And if you, you don't, it's sort thing. of not... Exactly. It's not gypsy jazz or Exactly. Whatever. It's not right. And at the times and I've yeah. been and listened and I thought, actually, it would be a crime in this music to do something individual. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be... Whereas in other forms of music, you do something creative, everybody goes, wow, yeah. yeah. It would be like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. No, that's not appropriate. Yeah, 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 sure. But then, like, you know, look, if you, it's like in, like in Paris, like the, the, the whole 
thing with like Adrian Monyard and those boys. Are they changing it a bit? Well, they like maybe in the early two thousands or the mid two thousands, like it it sort of moved on to being a little bit more like jazz. Like, right. or it is. It's still got like a sort of. It's still got a what would you call it? So, like rules or whatever. Rules, yeah, you know, yeah. As it alders, but it's a little. It's closer to jazz. They they're like just busting out. Great. Loads of crazy stuff. Great. Well, that's see, I I don't. I, I don't follow the scene, so yeah. I mean, you probably know more about it than I do, but uh, as an overall impression, when I came back, I thought that that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, no, it totally makes you sense. You know, and, and anywhere where you get, oh, and it, it's not good for the whole vibe of the music. When you get this thing about there's a holy grail and we must all approach it. Yeah. It's very interesting how the, then the personal relationships between people are soured. Yeah. Whereas sure. if you're all going... Just going for something, and you're going for something together, towards some almost unknown place together. Yeah. yeah. And you seem to get much better relationships between individual relationships because people are always going, "Well, you're not doing it right. Actually, that's yeah, the right way to do it." Yeah. And that sours. Yeah. So the relationships inside that those camps are quite sour sometimes. And sure, yeah, it's weird, eh? Yeah. It's weird. And and, and that's to do with this sort of museum keeping thing. Yeah. You're not yeah. really true to the flame. It's a bit like the Millibands, you know. <laughs> Why that all blew up is because Ed thinks Dave's not true to the to the flame of Ralph. Right. You know, Ralph Milliband's socialist flame. So you 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 get this. It's it's, it's truth to the flame. It's yeah. a problem. That's always a problem. Right? Yeah, always a problem. It's a problem in like politics. Everything. Yes. You know, oh and, no, and we're the young left, we're yeah, the right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah, you're yeah, the exactly. evil one, I'm the good one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it, and it, and it can't, I mean, it's, it's a tendency in every area of life. But I think we had it a bit less in the 60s and 70s because there was no sense that we needed to take anything from the past. Yeah. Um, you know, so you didn't. Uh, you see, you know, uh, okay, we could to go back to. Dear old Eric, you know, that's an example of somebody in the 60s and early 70s had his own thing. He didn't care, yeah. And didn't care and played magnificently and then actually became self-conscious and started to try and sound authentic. Right. Out of a sense of self-consciousness. Yeah. I'm not really... And very very interesting uh, because uh, I understand that feeling from this area we're talking about because it's the feeling of like... I'm a white bloke from Surrey. I yeah. can't really be playing the blues. And when you're, if you get into the proper area of of, of uh, manouche jazz, then you're going, well, I can't possibly do this. I'm not a manouche. Yeah. You know, I can't be real. Yeah. I can't be authentic. Yeah. So I have absolutely no pretensions to being the slightest bit authentic in that region. And, and encouraged by Grappelli, who wasn't interested in, in that kind of authenticity, yeah. rather wanted to not have it. Yeah. For all sorts of reasons. I mean, he sure. was very fed up that when Django died, his name was left off the record. Stefan right. was left off the record. It became Django Reinhardt. You know, yeah. with Stefan completely with a Y. Yeah, spelt wrong. Spelt yeah. wrong. So there were lots of lots of personal reasons <laughs> as well funny. why he yeah. he he wouldn't talk about Django. In, nah. in a, a situation like this, he'd probably say wouldn't even speak about him. But yeah. you get him. You get if you got him, you know, on his own. You're in a restaurant and didn't ask the question. He might start talking about it. Sure. Either disparagingly, not yeah. musically, obviously, disparagingly about his personality, or 
he'd say things like, you know, I'd say, he'd say, uh, I'd say, what are you doing next week, Stephanie? I'd say, well, I'm going to make a record with Joe Pass. I'd be, oh, that'd be great, you know. Yeah. And then he'd go, well, maybe. He said, but you know what, all these guys, Joe Pass, Barney, Herb. Yeah. If Django was alive, he would kill them all. <laughs> so he was very proud of him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course it's true, you know. Yeah. None of them yeah. could... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've got a lot of theories about this. And I think one of, one of my theories is that, is that because, uh, you know, the Manouche thing comes from India, which is the home sure. of stringed yeah. instruments, Yeah. that when it comes to actual physical ability, mm. natural physical ability, mm-hmm. I mean, they blow nearly every American out of the water. I yeah. Mean, you know, the, the, the great jazz guitarists that we love... You know, Wes Montgomery and these people. I mean, when it comes to technique, yeah. Jim Hall, I mean, I love Jim Hall, you know, I'd love to listen to Jim Hall. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to facility, they're yeah. nowhere compared to something like Borelli Legren. Yeah. Nowhere. And I think this comes from. You think, you think it's, it's genetic? I think it's genetic. Yeah, I think right. it is. Yeah, oh, well, I think so. Well, the, the, the style, the whole downstroke thing is, is, is actually in. Like the Oud. Saint Sarod. Yeah, yeah, Sarod. And, uh, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. and all that. Yeah, yeah. So See, I, makes... don't really, I didn't do that. I didn't grow up like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I just have to play how I grew up. I mean, yeah. I tried to sort of adapt that. I mean, it's got so confusing and complicated. I thought, well, I've just got to do yeah. what I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is. Uh, it, it, it feels like it's a really good way to get a sound on an acoustic guitar. On acoustic guitar. guitar, it is. Yeah. It is yeah. because it's ergonomically brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, if you watch oud players or yeah, they or, get a massive sound. It's always like that, mm, you know. Yeah, yeah. You cross over, but I just grew up. If, see, when I started playing, alternate picking was the latest thing. Yeah, you know, because all these old jazzers had done a sort of down picking thing, ah. and everybody said, "No, oh, no, you don't need to do that now. If you want to get real facility, you've got to go up and down." Up and down, and just because you've got electric, as soon as you've got yes, electric, electric guitar, you can, yes, you can, exactly. you can yes, do you it. Do anything on electric Sounds guitar. I was uh, doing something that's actually with Guitarist magazine the other day, and I was talking about that and saying, "Well, actually, electric guitar. There's so many hundreds of ways to skin that cat." Yeah, you know. Yeah. So many ways, but you're right. On acoustic guitar, if you need um, projection, evenness, and volume, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Although you know, there's some you can great players like Gary Potter and yeah. things that don't do it that yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. Because he grew up like me, you know, yeah. doing it the all, and then you start playing acoustic guitar. But that's why I never thought of myself really as an acoustic guitarist, even though I probably spent spent half my life playing acoustic guitar. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's like where you started, and I started. Sure. I mean, I had a as soon as I could, I got a, a, a Gibson SG. Yeah. And that was me. Yeah. You know? And as I say, I borrowed an acoustic guitar to do the Stefan Grappelli audition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it was you, you know, you talk about this down thing, I mean, downstroke thing, because it was hilarious when we were touring because this, we never had any sound systems or yeah. anything. They were absolutely diabolical. So, uh, you know, I was certainly started playing much harder with yeah. the right hand and uh, to get volume. And also, we used to do <laughs> so this hilarious thing when we were sound checking. Because it would be kind of one or two monitors, but very little. You yeah. Know? And this Italy wouldn't invest in any kind of sound equipment. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, waste waste of money. Yeah, it's northern. So it. what we do is <laughs> <laughs> so what we do was okay. So you get your guitar right, and you play really quietly. This is the sound check. You play like quietly, 
and you, I'd be here, right? Yeah. Okay, and I go, no, I can't hear myself. I can't hear. Myself. You have to turn me up. You know, might be a little monitor there, maybe not. But anyway, you could hear it play from the sound of something. Yeah. You go, yes, yeah, so I need to turn you up. So the guy would turn you up, and then when he came to the actual gig, you'd play right into the mic. Yeah. Really hard. Yeah. And then you'd uh, sorry, did that go? <laughs> no, no, it didn't go over. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, I've done some good. <laughs> um, that will. Uh, so that would. You know, you try and get volume like that. So oh, I was hacking away. Yeah. Hacking. Yeah. Really hacking. And uh, uh, it was quite good because I remember when I, if I'd had a stint with Grappelli and I went back to the electric guitar, it was like flying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I used all sort of inappropriate guitars with him. But, uh, um, well, I didn't, I never was that much at the time fun of the Selma. I mean, Diz Disley had a proper Selma. Yeah. But he had monstrously heavy strings on it. You know, it. I think I might, I think I actually have what what we think might be one of the summers he had that he used. You have? In my house, yeah. Really? Yeah, it's not mine, it's my flatmate's. He bought it off of, you know, Robin? Robin Katz. Oh, Robin Katz, yes. Yeah, he bought it off Robin Katz. And I think Robin had, at some point, like, just, he'd seen the guitar in a, in a video or a photo, and he was like, this is this guitar. Well, I'll tell you what, they're called... Is it no, doesn't have anything on it? No, what are they called? They're called something because I went down to an auction recently and they were auctioning one which is supposedly similar to his, which is the necks aren't original. The necks were remade in yeah. the 50s by yeah. somebody, not Eddie Freeman, somebody else. And so actually, they're, they're well, the one I played at this auction, which was supposedly like Dizzy's, was lovely to play. Yeah, but at the time, because he had very heavy strings on it, because he's mainly playing rhythm guitar, yeah. Very heavy bronze strings and with long, <laughs> long scale, it yeah. was just like I couldn't get anything out yeah. of it. Yeah. So I used to pick it up and then just put it straight down. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's funny this auction because I didn't even realise I was bidding. As oh really? A, as an aside, <laughs> I went down, and obviously they clocked that I was going to be a bidder. Uh. So this lot came up and there were all sorts of people on the phone. Yeah. And the bloke was looking at me, and then the bid would go up. And the bloke was looking at me, and the bid would go up. And then, really? then finally, I sort of, I just, I, thank God, out of instinct, I just went <clears throat> like that. Yeah. And then at the end, somebody said, oh, bad luck, you nearly got it. <laughs> I'd have been 10 grand out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah, what do they do if you, if, what do you do in that situation? Do you? You've got to. I think there's all sorts of legal implications. <laughs> Suddenly as soon as you on. walk in there, you're... you're, you're well, you know, and, and yeah. uh, isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. Bad luck, you nearly got it. <laughs> I, was going, I was just looking at him. He kept looking at me going, have I 3,000 in the room? And I was looking at him, and I suppose I just went like that. Yeah. Jesus. Bloody hell, that was a narrow escape. Yeah, you could, yeah. Anyway, it's a lovely guitar. Yeah, we could have had a really good guitar. <laughs> well, it, it's not. It wasn't. You see, the point is, you had then have when it was buyer's premium. Have you heard of that? No. Okay. See, I, I was completely innocent about this. Twenty percent extra. So if you uh, bid nine grand, then you've got another eighteen hundred grand on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buyer's premium. Yeah. And the vendor pays twenty percent. So basically, the auction. So nine thousand minus twenty percent is what the the, the bloke who's selling it gets. Yeah. And they, so they get about four or five grand out, four grand out. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, uh, no, I'm relieved. I'm yeah. Relieved. It's just the, a guitar like that, I go, lovely, lovely, lovely guitar. Oh, I love it, I love it. I love it. But I, it, 
I wouldn't play it because I wouldn't yeah. play it live because I don't want to be too worried about breaking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But anyway, yeah. That, that's um, that's uh, uh, another that's another right. story. It's all right. Um, hey, I was one thing. Um, I just remember you talking about Grappelli's um, sort of session work, all of his studio stuff. And I know that you went with him on some. Yes, I did. I went on with him on one film, which I can't remember what it was called. Uh, um, but funnily enough, I got uh, somebody phoned me up and they said, oh, we're, doing, we're showing Les Valseurs, right. which he did the music for. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I th- originally said, and they said, oh, Jean Moreau's in it. I went, oh, God, yeah, I do. I was, I'm in that. Right. And then we looked at the dates we weren't. It was Philip Catherine. Right. And uh, so I did another film with him with Jean Moreau in it. Uh, because Jan Moreau's in the, in the studio. And I said, yeah. Jan Moreau, Jesus. I got the guitar out and she sang and I played. So I've accompanied Jan Moreau. Oh, okay. How about that? See, I wanted to do that just so I could say. Yeah. I accompanied Jan Moreau. And she was absolutely charming, of course. Um, uh, so, yeah, so he did a bit. But interesting, actually, um, my, ta- my uh, um, uh, what I know of Grappelli in the studio, of course, is... Recording was when they started recording was incredibly expensive. Yeah, and very nerve wracking. Yeah. So I asked him about the first session with uh, Reinhardt. Yeah. And all he said was, "Well, we were just pleased we did not make any mistakes. Yeah, too many mistakes. Yeah, because if you made a mistake, the whole it's all thing was ruined. Yeah." Very expensive. The whole track? I don't actually know much about it. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Tune exactly, or like the whole not... track. No, no, because the whole... It was, on, it was on sort of some sort of cylinder yeah. initially. I mean, electric recording came in pretty soon after that, but I think it was on some sort right, of cylinder. Right, it was really... <laughs> and each one was really expensive. Mm. So if you made a mistake and they had to throw it away, <laughs> that's quite a lot of money down the drain. So yeah. he said, oh. And he never lost that. Whenever yeah. we recorded, he'd go into a sort of special place. Yeah. And play very safe. Yeah. And not go for anything. Yeah. And it would be all good. Yeah. But not. Yeah. You know, why well, most of the best recordings of him are live. Uh huh. You know, uh, you know, later on live, I mean, there's one of him with, I think, with Alan Clare, Queen Elizabeth Hall. It's just amazing. He plays amazingly mm. on it. Mm. And our winery one, we all clamped up, actually. That was the worst of all possible worlds. Right. Because it's supposedly live, but it's one take live, you know. Yeah. So there's no redoing. Yeah. So any mistakes are just there. Horrible. Yeah, yeah. So he really clammed up on that. Right, okay. I was quite surprised the way he played, you know. He really, really did play absolutely fine. Perfect play. Yeah. Without any particular flair or... Okay, yeah. So, but as far as his... You're talking about his film stuff and everything. I don't really know. I mean, I didn't really know about Les Valsers, but but I went along to the Q and A because they wanted to ask me about Crapelli and stuff and what he was like, you know. Yeah. So um, I know he did. Of course, he was an amazing reader. Yeah. We stood him in good stead because by by the time I started working with him, he couldn't remember anything. I mean, the first gig I did right. with him, we started to do Diner, and he couldn't remember the middle eight. Ah, okay. I was going. You know, because it was before I got used to him. Uh-huh. You know, I go, Stefan Grappelli yeah. can't remember the middle age yeah. diner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one reason why he improvised. And also, um, he was a fantastic reader. Mm-hmm. He taught, he was the only 
uh, ed music education he ever had was he did a, an external exam. Right. Well, obviously he was playing, you know, all the time, so he yeah. didn't have time to go to college. Yeah. In, um, in you know, in, in, in reading or whatever. Right. And got first prize, he said. Right. And so he could read anything. Oh. And it was, but he didn't like doing it on stage because he wears glasses. He yeah. Like wearing his glasses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and also, rightly, he didn't like reading off stage. I mean, if you're Stefan Grappelli, you're the star of the show, if you start getting music out of yeah. on, it doesn't look good. No, yeah. Really doesn't look good. No. It's maybe all right for one tune or something, but generally. So, he didn't like to read on stage. So, 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 so this is, this is the, the reality. We had no memory. Yeah. And I didn't finish telling you the story about the rehearsal, what <laughs> would happen to a rehearsal. So, this is what would happen to a rehearsal. Now, there's a reason which, if you're very, very clever, you could figure out why we never played a tune we hadn't rehearsed. We, sorry, we never played a tune we had rehearsed. Right. Now, the reason for this was, this very occasion, I remember once we went round to his flat in Chelsea, he said, come round for a rehearsal before we go. And he said, mm -hmm. we went round, he had his piano there, and we started playing something like Fascinating Rhythm. Yeah. And he gets down to the piano and he goes... He's figuring out all on the piano and we get it gets really intricate. Yeah. You know. Absolutely lovely. Yeah. Harmony is really intricate. Okay. Because that's what he loved, harmonies on piano. Yeah. That was his big thing. Yeah. That's why he wasn't particularly interested in the violin because it's not a harmonic instrument. He loved harmonies. Yeah. And hence the Art Tate and B chord. Mm. And so, so after two or three hours, we'd have this incredibly, wonderfully intricate arrangement yeah. to Fascinating Rhythm. Okay. So then you all bundle in the car and he gets in his limo. And so three hours later, you're at the gig doing the sound check. And you go, Steph, shall we play that arrangement? Of, and of course, he's gone. He's forgotten it already. <laughs> <laughs> so we never had any arrangements because he'd forget them. Yeah. <laughs> so you go, hello, no, no. We rehearse a little more. And of course, we never had another rehearsal. Yeah, so yeah. that particular, so any tune that we'd rehearsed a lot would never get into the repertoire. Yeah. That's but funny. it could be recorded, of course, if it ever came to it. But sure. then he treated recording like so many jazz musicians of that era did as a sort of duff gig. Right. You go in at 10 in the morning, not feeling like it. You play a gig. Yeah. It's recorded and then you go home. Yeah. You don't listen or anything. Yeah. Take the money and go home. Yeah. And he made thousands of records. At one point, I think he was the most recorded man in yeah. music history at one point. And we'd be in restaurants and there'd be a record playing, obviously him. And I go, is that you, Steph? He'd go, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And, and, you know, having no memory, which now I can totally understand at the time, just blew my mind, you know. We were in a hotel once and there was a guy playing the piano and he was playing uh, Didn't We by Jim Webb, you see, and he's playing like this and stuff. Like, oh, that is a lovely tune. I like it very much. Yeah. Oh, what is it? And he goes over to the piano and he says, excuse me, baby, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. My name is Stefan Grappelli. I know who you are, right? Uh, uh, listen, uh, that tune, what is it? Yeah. Oh, that's Didn't We by Jim Webb. Uh, hello, well, could you write it down for me? <sighs> I would like to play it. Yeah. See? So he goes, sure, sure thing, Steph. So, so next thing, we're in the dressing room, and he's got this, and he's playing it. 
and uh, so we had a little go, I remember, and then we 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 went on. Of course, we didn't play it. Yeah. You know. And we come off stage, and the people are queuing, <laughs> queuing up to get an autograph. And the first album I see, the first track, this is a Stefan Grappelli album, didn't we, Jim Webb? Right. So he'd recorded it, played it, and everything. Right. Oh, he'd already played yes, it? Yes, already, already played right. it, already recorded <laughs> it. <laughs> but now, you see, I can understand that. Yeah. But in those days, I was going, that's not possible. Yeah. You, you, if you recorded it and played it and went through all the agony of recording something and you can't remember that you did it. Yeah. Of course, now I totally get it. Yeah. Because I can't remember anything myself now. Yeah, yeah. But um, isn't that amazing? Yeah, so, it's crazy. But uh, that was that was him, you know, and, and of course, I, I used to think, you know, well, it's a damn good job he can improvise because he can't remember anything. Yeah. And I have a theory about him was that because he played pretty similar things every night. Sure. In his improvisations, yeah. the same things would come up, like everybody. But it would, you know, and but it never sounded stale, yeah, because he'd forgotten. <laughs> That's what he played the night before. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Sort of, you know. Yeah, yeah. It always sounded fresh. Yeah, yeah. So it's still fresh to him. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like me when I now tell my anecdotes. <laughs> and I've forgotten which anecdotes I've told and who I've told them to. So yeah. they're always fresh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Whereas if you've sat down and you've worked out your solo yeah, and you're just, a young person, yeah. it's gonna sound really kind of stiff. Yeah. And when you play when you find yourself repeating yourself, you know that you've done exactly. it. Exactly. Like, oh, exactly, exactly. I literally yeah, exactly. just played that yeah, yeah, exactly. on the same place. Well don't worry, mate, when you get older you'll you'll just go, Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, I mean I'm pretty I've got a pretty bad memory anyway. Good. So, yeah, so I just <laughs> get lucky. worse. <laughs> I turn into a big blank slate. <laughs> um, uh, one thing comes to mind is the is Grappelli working with Paul Simon. Oh, that's a great you story. That story. You've heard that. Story. Well, I've heard the story, but the people the are, people that have listen, no, no, well, that's a may, may story. Of course, I wasn't there. But he t he told me the story yeah. from his point of view, which of course makes it hilarious for a start. Yeah. His point of view. So basically, <laughs> he was playing at the Hilton restaurant, which he loved. He said, I've got a very good job. He said, I have a room upstairs. I come down, I play. Yeah. Anybody who wants nuage, they have to put 50 francs in the pot. Yeah. Which, which Hilton? Paris Hilton. Paris. I mean, there's, there's probably loads there. Right. But one of the Hiltons. And he, he loved it because he had the room. Yeah. He lived in the hotel. I mean, this is a man who's completely undomesticated. Uh -huh. So he was very happy to live in the hotel. Room. But he lived in the hotel? Yes, he lived in the hotel. Right. And went downstairs to do the gig. Right. He was very happy. And he used to go out to do uh, other gigs that people yeah. got in. But it's a time, you know, when he wasn't really... Because he was very passive, you know. Basically, yeah. he would not think of organising his career. Sure. And this happened, and he was very comfortable. He loved it. Anyway... Apparently, Paul Simon occasionally used to come in. Of course, Stefan knew nothing about who he was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, apparently, this guy, Simon, yeah. <laughs> come to me, he said, will you play on my record? Yeah. So, um, Stefan sort of, I think, probably being Stefan, he did it himself, kind of said, well, you'll have to pay me. It yeah. was probably by Paul Simon's standards, a very paltry sum. Right. Paul Simon's probably thinking, great, I've got Stefan Grappelli for like, I don't know, 5,000 francs or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, the old, old francs or something, yeah. whatever. Anyway, because Steph, Steph was like that, you know. Yeah. He, he had, you know, he, 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 was, he loved money, but his ideas of worth, I mean, yeah. he was loved playing with Yehudi Menuhin because right. he got the same, Yehudi Menuhin insisted that Stefan got the same fee. Right. 
which was an enormous which fee. Which would be loads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so he probably... I, 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 he didn't tell me that. But anyway, he had, the money was arranged. So they had a day fixed, right, mm -hmm. so you can imagine. So, as I've already said, recording for Stefan was like doing a duff gig. You turn up, you yeah. set up, you get through it as quick as possible. You only do a retake if something terrible happens. <laughs> and then you get out. Yeah. So he arrives, bang on 10 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> with his violin. Yeah. So he's there. He said, I'm there. Nothing is happening. <laughs> Nobody is there. At 11 o'clock, somebody arrives. Yeah. starts... And I'm sitting there, you know, I can imagine he used to rock back and forth and do this. And anyway, I'm so bold, what is happening? He said, Ah, Simon, he arrive at three o'clock in the afternoon. He get out his guitar. Ching, ching. He is not inspired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I start worrying for my money. Yeah. I must play or I will not get my money. <laughs> so, so he said, Hello, he's, he's going... I love you, I love you, all that rubbish. Yeah. He's not inspired. So I, so I teach him a blues. <laughs> he said, it, it's getting to, to nine o'clock. I'm thinking, wow, I must play for yeah. my money. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, I teach him a blues and we, we play a blues. <laughs> Poor ting. <laughs> so anyway, so that's on the record called Hobo Blues. And it isn't a blues. And yeah. But anyway, is, is that all he ended up doing? Just that one. I think one? so. Just yeah. that one track. It's really funny. And to, to, so, so he got out with his money. <laughs> uh, but he, he had no idea that Paul Simon was anything. And that was another wonderful thing about Stephanie. Yeah. He didn't know, not heard of anybody. He did actually ask. This is true because I checked with him. He actually asked Miles Davis if he was a musician. <laughs> 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 he said, I did, I did, I did not recognise him. That's really funny. Because <laughs> apparently he came, first time Stefan played in America was around 65, I think. Yeah. Newport okay. Jazz Festival. Right. And apparently so there's a knock on the door opens and in comes this dude with his shades. Yeah. Ah, oh, Stefan, that was great, man. <laughs> <laughs> Great to see you, you know. Yeah. So goes, oh, thank you, baby. Are, are you a musician? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? That's great. It is fantastic. And, um, and I saw it many times. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of stories I could tell of those things where he didn't recognise somebody. I remember a very quick, funny one was I was packed up. We finished the gig and I was walking on the corridor, came out of the dressing room, was walking on the corridor, coming towards me was Mose Allison. Right. Went into the dressing room and I'd literally got another 20 paces down. Right. The door comes out and Mose Allison comes past and walks past me. So I go back into the dressing room and the promoter's there. I said, wow, that was quick. He said, well, <laughs> Mose came in and Stefan was putting his violin away like this, you see. Yeah. Putting the violin away. You know how it is. Yeah. And apparently Mose Allison came in and said, hi, Steph, Mose Allison. And Steph just went, <laughs> carried, shrugged, sorry, shrugged, and just carried on putting, putting his violin away. <laughs> he was always mortified, though, when it happened. Right. Because I'd say to him, I mean, Les Paul jumped up on stage with us. Right. Started wailing away, and Stefan leans over to me and goes, what is this? Who is this guy? He can't play. I said, it's Les Paul. He's very famous. He goes, oh, oh. 
Not because he'd heard of him, yeah. because he was so self-conscious about not having heard of anybody and putting right. his foot in it. Okay. So then he goes, come on, baby, come on, baby. Yeah. You know. Amazing. <laughs> but that first reaction, who is this guy can't play? <laughs> he didn't... It, it's so funny that his first reaction wasn't, what's he doing on my stage? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, who is this guy can't play? <laughs> <laughs> So funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. He was always listening. He was always saying things. He had. He was kind. It's like not Tourette, but he would always be saying things into my ear while I was trying to play. Right. You know, rude things about. You know, we play with Shelley Man. He go, oh, listen, he built a house <laughs> in my <laughs> ear. You see, that's where I got the John Lewis thing from. That yeah. was in my ear. Yeah. I'm playing. He's going. Oh, that is not so poor. That is not a piano. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But of course he was very, I mean, I mustn't uh, give the impression that he was mean-spirited or or ultra-critical or anything. He just was very keen on the piano and... Uh, it sounded like he liked to have a laugh as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, totally like, funny. He was always having a laugh. Yeah, yeah. It, it really sounds like that fun. was him being yeah. funny. Well, sort of in a way it was, yeah. Although he, as I say, because he really expected something from the piano. Right. But everybody else, he was great. You know, yeah. he was very easy going about who he played with and he was not not critical. In fact, we used to play with Niels Pedersen. Oh, yeah. Wow. And he said, hey, listen, baby, Niels, he's a phenomenal, he's a, he's a formidable, but yeah. we don't need him. Yeah. <laughs> we have our lovely Jack. <laughs> we had Jack Sewing, who was a just, a, 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 well, I say just, he was a really good bass player, yeah. not a known bass player. And um, Stefan loved him, you know. Yeah, sure. And he, so he wasn't. You know, he wasn't a snob or anything. Yeah, yeah. He just, yeah. he just, he just, when it came to the piano, he was, mm. you know. Yeah. But he he loved Roland Hanna. Mm-hmm. I remember he made an album with Roland Hanna. He loved Roland Hanna. He's a pianist that most people have forgotten now. I don't know who that is. Alan Clare he loved for his chords. Mm-hmm. Um, he absolutely adored him, you know. Mm-hmm. Alan Clare, oh. Yeah. He was formidable. He yeah. Was something, that guy, you know. <laughs> So, but funny enough, you know, when I'm thinking about it now, it was only with uh, pianists. He was very encouraging to other violinists. Yeah. And not at all competitive. Yeah. I remember we did a, a Paris um, thing with, uh, and had uh, a absolutely Paganini guy, Salvatore Accardo. Right. As the other violinist. And, and the, the, the agent said to Stefan, he said, why do you play with him? He'll kill you. And Stefan said, I don't care, you know. Yeah, it's good. Because the car, you know, the car, it was like, obviously it's a completely different world, but it was that absolutely yeah. unbelievable yeah. late 19th century Paganini yeah. stuff, yeah. which is just... This stuff is it's bonkers. You know, that, that, it's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know that piece called The Last Rose of Summer? Yeah, oh. I was just thinking about that That's when you were talking about that. Unbelievable. That gives me nightmares. I've never even tried it, but you well, look at it and think, what are you I, doing? I know, when I was playing with Nigel Kennedy, we were, they were having a party and some kind of crazy hyped up Romanian guy got up and played yeah. that and yes. all you can do is laugh it's yeah. so out there you know who can play that it's Bennett McLean do you know Bennett Bennett no. plays the piano and he's right. also an amazing jazz violinist and, in and he can play that and he can play that he's, there's a video of him playing it I was really yeah, yeah. I would like to get an interview actually, I must look, there must be on YouTube people playing it yeah yeah so what's it it's called The Last Roads of Summer I think it's The Last Roads of Summer it's, it's Ernst isn't it Ernst, Ernst. yeah Ernst. Yeah, it's crazy. He's doing because he's like it's like left hand pizzicato yeah, while at the same time while you're doing playing, harmonics yeah, and while you're doing yeah, it's I mean, crazy. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. I, it's like 
80 to like Steve Vai yeah. to the power of 10. Yeah, but like with a really nice sound. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't know. It's uh, that's it, a... it's, uh, that late 19th century sort of, in terms of chops and things, yeah. they went crazy, didn't they? Yeah. That's chops crazy that's era, true. anyway. Technique. It's, yeah. I mean, those, yeah. Uh, what, what are they? What are the famous names? As what? Sarasati? Sar no. Ernst. I don't know. Uh, I actually don't know much. Joseph Joachim. Uh -huh. Ifits, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Is, is yeah. The, yeah. kind of a product of that era. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ifits. Ifits. God, don't you love Ifits? Yeah. <laughs> don't, have you seen the documentary about Ifits? No. So sad in the end. Right. That every single human thing was suborned to playing the violin at such a level. Right. So, that, what do you mean? Is well, I mean, you suppress everything. All he talked all, all, all he did was play the violin. Yeah, in a way. I mean, right. there was some sort of marriage, but he was completely alienated from his kids and all yeah. that. There was one really sad moment where he, he said he got to New York, he had an incredible success at the yeah. age of 17. He started to party a bit. Yeah. You know, with the sort of New York Jewish community yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And hanging out. Yeah. And then he said he carried on playing and then he got a review of a concert, which to us wouldn't sound too bad. They thought, <laughs> Mr. Heifetz is standing still and he's not really progressing. Yeah. He said, I nearly committed suicide. I never had a bad criticism. Yeah. And then I decided, that's it. No more parting, no more nothing, just violin. Yeah. And he said, I'm grateful to that critic. Yeah. Because he put me back on track. Yeah. So it's back to nine hours a day, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. But isn't that incredible, though? I mean, yeah. it's sort of inspiring and despiring at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but you're what you are. You yeah, are what you are. Yeah, you know. she's different. I mean, yeah, people deal with criticism in different ways. Well, but it's so interesting. A guy like that would have had nothing but plaudits all his life, all his yeah. young life, because he was a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He arrives in at Carnegie Hall he in 1918, plays yeah. his first concert. It's an absolute sensation. Yeah. So he just starts to relax just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's brutal. Well, it's classical you, music though as well. I guess. Oh, it's totally brutal. You know, I played with Nigel Kennedy for years. And yeah. Like, you see the you see the demands of it. Yeah. And you've got to have, you know, you don't in every area of performance you've got to have a bit of this combination, but in that area you've got to have an extraordinary mixture of absolute steel yeah. and sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to have artistic sensitivity and yeah. in other areas you've got to be absolutely ruthless. Yeah, yeah. And that's... I mean, I met Perlman a bit. Right, yeah. Same combination I could feel in him, you know. Right. Really tough guy. Right. Really strong character. Really. Like Nigel. Really strong character. Yeah. At the same time, Yeah. it's wonderful sensitivity to music. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, yeah. It's a... Uh, it's difficult, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all have to have it a bit to be in our, in our world, but they have to have it in. Space. Yeah, they must do much more than. And the, the demands, the psychological demands, are unbelievable. Yeah, I remember Chris saying that he did a he did a concerto with the BBC, the concert orchestra. Yeah. And um, it was amazing. He sounded yeah. fantastic. Yeah. You know, and afterwards I said, "You're going to do that again?" He said, mate, "He said the stress." Yeah. You know, and they're, um, those guys like Nigel and uh, uh, and Itzhak, they're trained yeah. 
to be able to withstand that stress. Yeah, sure, yeah. From an early age. It's because all their teachers are fucking psychos. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> They're the all... teachers are just like, why are you standing like that? Yeah, Go I know. Go back home and practice fire. I know. Well, they, affect, they don't <laughs> buckle, do they? No. They don't buckle under that kind of... And, of course, they they deal it out as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, deal yeah, it sure. out to you. Yeah, you're yeah. playing with them. Yeah. And you're going... Yeah. I, actually, and of course, that's, you know, growing up in more or less in rock bands-ish, prog bands. I mean, yeah. there was more going on with that. The whole thing in jazz is nobody ever says anything yeah. to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just go and talk about them behind their back. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so yeah. you, you wonder for years what people are saying about you behind your back. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you play, they're going, oh, yeah, great, man, yeah, great. Because yeah. yeah. it's all like casual <laughs> sex, you know. You play one one or two gigs with somebody, so yeah. obviously you're not going to confront anything because, yeah. because you know you want to work with them again, and and there's no point because it was a one night stand. Yeah. So you go, yeah, it was lovely sleeping with you, you know. Yeah, sort of thing. yeah, yeah. And then you go back and go, waste of time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, in classical music, and and if you're in a rock band with people that you're really bonded to, then you yeah. really get stuck into each other. Yeah, yeah. You hey. know, I remember the early bands I was in. You know, people would really go at each other. Yeah. You know, and because um, that's the only way to be really creative. Sure. All this politeness doesn't lead to any creativity. Do you reckon? Oh, come on. If you're in the band with somebody and you're working you've got with to, somebody, yeah. Yeah, you've got to get stuck in and say, look, I thought that was shit what you played. And yeah. he's got to say that to you. And then you've got, you've got to be able to take it like the classical guys can. Yeah. And that's brilliant because I can't. Yeah. And when, having been years in the jazz scene, I mean, I. You know, I find, you know, Germany, for instance, and this is generalisation, they're much more honest and, and truthful. Yeah. So you do something and they go, I have to say, that wasn't very good. And you go, oh, yeah. oh, I'm yeah. a delicate flower. I can't take that sort of thing. And, and um, you know, so that's right. The training they get is... <laughs> it's just they've got, yeah, these crazy, brutal dudes. Yes, exactly. Shouting at them, really. Yeah. Well, I, on that documentary, there was a high fit masterclass. You can imagine what that was like. Yeah. I mean, he was obviously unaware. I think, of, I've, I he, think I've seen that. Oh, it's maybe. terrifying. Is it new or it, it's 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 old. It's old. Uh, and it, even, obviously, the recording. But how new is the documentary? Uh, and it. Uh, well, I saw it about ten years ago. Okay, maybe I think I have seen. Maybe I have seen the. Uh, the masterclass. The masterclass. Yeah. Where everybody, even even on 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 film you can feel the fear yeah and the way he just looks at people they start playing and he just goes yeah <laughs> <laughs> they just start crumbling yeah oh, hey have you seen that have you seen that Mark? this is off subject but have you seen that miles davis the thing where he's on this like american tv show in like maybe in like the 80s and uh he's just like sitting there looking pissed off and hardly saying anything to the to the talk show host and then like part of the part of the show is like they're gonna they bring on some kids to play for miles and then he gives them criticism oh, no. and man he just like it's the most brutal thing because his little guy comes up and he's really excited and he well he's obviously nervous yeah but you can see he's excited when he play he plays pretty well yeah you can see he's pretty excited to to hear the you know what does he have to say and, he, and Miles just goes, yeah, man, well, you know you, what you got to do, don't you? You just got to practice. Or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. the guy's just like, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Walks yeah. off looking sad. Oh, okay, Miles, that was, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, great. exactly. I know. You've not got anything else to say there? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, man. Just silence. And then they just keep coming on, and he, and this, like, that is the most he says to any, any of them. The next one, he doesn't, he just completely just changes. It just changes the subject completely. Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't even talk about the plane. Completely wrong person to have a yeah. <laughs> Completely wrong. They, they they misfired there. They really. Well, also because because he knows perfectly well that he's he's on thin ice himself as a trumpeter, yeah. not as a, not as an artist, yeah, not as a, not as a creator, not yeah, as, but as technically as a trumpeter, yeah. He's on very thin ice. Whereas if if that was Winter Marsalis or something, he'd be very encouraging, tell them exactly what they needed to do. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, he, as a technician, yeah. Miles is nowhere near. Yeah. Winter Marsalis. Yeah. Nowhere near it. And but he was probably losing it a lot by that point. Yes. Well. And and taking masses of loads of heroin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny. You should check check that check that that out. It's it is it is it's a funny video. Yeah, I will. Yeah, is that on YouTube, Miles? Yeah, what's yeah. It called? yeah. I can't remember. It's just like Miles <coughs> on TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll find yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that. Hey, what what time are we on? I don't know what time are we on now. Oh, it's twenty four, twenty past, twenty past two. So is it? Oh shit. <laughs> well, we'll we do. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks great. for the chat. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> a lot. Thank you very much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. Um, I have been, and I still am, Matt Holborn. And you've also been listening to John Etheridge. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I feel like if you wanted to subscribe to us on iTunes, you would just do it, wouldn't you? You don't even need to tell you. But I feel like I should just keep asking you anyway. Um... I don't know why I always end up rambling at the end. Like at the beginning, my introduction is always so, like, I feel like it's quite concise and it's always a bit serious. And I get to the end and I just start talking rubbish. And I, I'm still going. Thank you. Bye.